Good afternoon. It's Friday the 24th of November 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Colour News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we have Vanessa Bailey and Ben Rubin. Uh, welcome to you both. We're going to get kicked off uh, with what's going on or what was going on yesterday in Dublin. Uh, we've seen the video, no doubt. Uh, the police chief said that 34 people had been arrested uh, following the riot in Dublin last night. Uh, a dozen shops, uh, sorry, a dozen shops targeted uh, and uh, one police officer seriously injured uh, the rioting, uh, in the rioting and many others inj uh, hurt. So not quite so seriously. Uh, and of course, this all followed on from the stabbing of uh, five casualties uh, at about one o'clock local time. Uh, the Gardaí were called to what was described as a serious incident at Parnell Square East uh, in the centre of uh, Dublin. Uh, and as, as I say, five casualties, including three young children and a man uh, and a woman have been taken to hospital. Uh, the man who carried out the stabbings uh, apparently did so uh, as an Algerian, although the claim is that he is uh, a Dublin or an Irish citizen. Um, so uh, let's just have a quick look at uh, some of the uh, video here. Um, if I can find it, Stephanie's not uh, in the in the uh, studio today, but I just wanted to highlight this uh, little bit of uh, video clip just because I'm, I've got some questions about whether uh, or how um, sort of spontaneous the, the riot was last night. So, of course, this is being uh, presented as a far-right uh, protest, uh, a riot caused by far-right extremists um, and yet the guardy leave a car a, a police car unlocked with the back door open uh, for somebody to throw in a burning box uh, this seems a little unlikely so uh, drew harris is the uh, police chief um, and uh, he had this to say public order units from all over ireland responded here to dublin more and more resources were were arriving throughout the evening but we could not have anticipated that in response to a terrible crime, the stabbing of school children and their teacher, that this would be the response. In, a, in effect, uh, those filled with hate and the hate directed towards members of Garda Shikana, that they would attempt to storm through our cordon and disrupt the crime scene and then engage in violence, looting and disorder, and including very significant criminal damage. Nobody could have anticipated that. Uh, uh, when these events broke, uh, when these events uh, started at 1.30, these awful events, and obviously we were concentrated upon the investigation, we couldn't have anticipated that this would be the reaction. I'm slightly sceptical about the lack of anticipation there because, uh, well, well, we'll explain that in a second. And of course, what happened with the stabbing was absolutely uh, atrocious and uh, uh, cannot be nothing can be said other than that about that. The, the riot itself, however, uh, let's just have a look at some of the, the sort of uh, comments on social media about it. Uh, so here's uh, Keith Woods. Uh, There's been a complete collapse in social order in Dublin tonight. Uh, this is entirely the government's fault. Um, I can't complain about that particular statement or that particular sentence. This is entirely the government's fault. Uh, they flooded our country with unsustainable level of m migrants planted small communities with migrant centers, 
uh, responded to legitimate concerns by labouring all opposition far right and passed the most draconian hate speech laws in the world to shut us up. When you deny people an outlet to express their concerns, uh, they, uh, you know, they're reasonable, uh, that you're going to make them desperate. Well, perhaps. But the point here is that this is totally as a result of government policy. And I think that's where this needs to be focused. Um, now, his point about uh, labeling everybody far right, this is a fair point to make. This is the label that has been placed on anybody that makes any kind of protest. Um, and of course, the hate speech, the so-called hate speech laws uh, designed to stop any dissent, any dissenting voices whatsoever, uh, have been in place in Ireland as they are in the UK. And in fact, uh, Leo Varadkar today saying that they're going to introduce even more draconian hate speech laws as a result of what happened. Uh, what a coincidence. Uh, let's have a look at this from Michael O'Connor. I have opinions on the Dublin riots, but I don't believe I can fully articulate them yet. But the summary to summarize uh, quite a bit of swearing the alt-right as a cancer is uh, how it ends up. And of course, this is uh, absolutely a large part of the narrative that, that, that anybody criticizing immigration or un unbridled Im immigration is somehow alt-right or right-wing uh, and extremist. Uh, then we've got uh, Brendan Ogle here. Uh, good address by Leo Varadkar. That was this morning. He gave a, a speech. Hopefully last night sees the state finally wake up to the threat of the far right, the racist hate and the mealy mouthed pro provocateurs online and offline. Uh, they've been indulged for far too long. Time to cleanse our streets. Uh, now, <laughs> that this again, absolutely pushing forward the notion that anybody that's counter uh, to government policy is somehow far right. Uh, here's Syrian girl. Uh, let Irish people keep their Irish character. They fought for their land for 800 years. Uh, don't forget that Ireland was created by mass illegal immigration and a refugee, sorry, <laughs> slip there. Don't forget that Israel was created by uh, mass illegal immigration and a refugee crisis. It ended in the genocide of the Palestinian people. I stand with Dublin. So again, in this case, uh, somebody is, Syrian girl is trying to uh, sort of imply that there's a connection between or a similarity between the two situations. Uh, and I would say that in this case, the, Ill the illegal immigration hasn't entirely been illegal. It has been mass migration absolutely brought forward by governments. And so the question is, where is the problem and where do we deal with the problem? And it's not just in Ireland, because as Liz Churchill was tweeting out here, it's also in France and America and Spain that are the three countries that she's chosen uh, to highlight here where the, the same type of civil unrest is taking place as a result of unbridled immigration. Um, so here's the, here's the point I'm trying to make, uh, perhaps badly, but this is the point I'm trying to make. This is a policy, and uh, we've mentioned Peter Sutherland several times, but this was his view that immigration is something which is desirable in order to break up the sense of homogeneity within nation states. Uh, and uh, so in this particular quote, he's saying, in my view, uh, the European Union should be doing its best to undermine any sense of our homogeneity and difference from others. Uh, this is this is what it's about. It is an attack on the nation. It is a, an attack on cultures, uh, and not just uh, Western cultures necessarily either, uh, because there's quite a bit of immigration going on, uh, unbridled immigration in Africa as well, uh, to the south, not just people coming to Europe and to the north. And I believe that at the heart of this is a policy 
Uh, and okay, people say that the clash of civilization and, and the making of world order by Samuel Huntington is a, a thesis rather than a policy. But I think we've seen uh, the acting out of that thesis uh, to create uh, to create a clash of civilizations. And that's, to me, what is very much going on here. Now, Gerard O'Coleman is saying the solution to Ireland's scumbag immigration problem is the three Ds, deter, detain, and deport. Uh, I understand why somebody would say this, uh, but my point here is if we don't deter and detain, at the very least, our political class, this problem isn't going away. Uh, and finally, I just want to make uh, to, to add Bob Moran's voice to this. If you're able to watch every government in the West torture and kill their own people for three years, then suddenly you go back to believing that any of them want to rid the world of terrorism, you're beyond deluded. Terrorism has been a tool of the West for quite a long time. Mass immigration is a tool of the West. We're making a mistake, I believe, if we uh, if we come out and riot on the basis of this. The protests should be directed in a particular direction initially. I'm not saying that migration problems shouldn't be resolved. It should be resolved. But we've got to deal with the disease, not with the symptom. Uh, and that's the point I would like to make on that. Let's move on then uh, to Vanessa and... Uh, uh, what's the latest on Gaza, Vanessa? Um, well, uh, basically, I would also just like to add on the immigration issue that the focus should surely be on preventing the wars that are causing uh, the mass immigration from countries that are under attack by our governments in the UK, the US and the EU. Um, but the ceasefire basically began in uh, Gaza this morning at 7 a.m., and will last four days. There should be a cessation of all military activity on both sides, a no-fly zone in southern Gaza, and a no-fly zone in northern Gaza between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. only. Three Palestinian prisoners to be released for one Israeli hostage, 50 Israeli hostages, women and children under the age of 19 to be released. 200 aid trucks, including medical supplies per day to all areas of Gaza. I just want to add that that's about one fifth of the requirement on an ordinary day in Gaza, not after almost two months of bombardment um, by Israel and the ongoing uh, conflict. Entry of four trucks of fuel and cooking gas per day. Again, not nearly enough for the current situation. Um, now, my experience in 2012, um, during the first uh, ceasefire after the Israeli aggression, um, Israel broke the ceasefire and actually led the most aggressive and savage bombardment of the entire campaign. This wasn't much different the day before or even the hours before Israel was bombing intensively, particularly in northern Gaza. And the next is a video basically of IOF forces celebrating the mass bombing of Gaza just before the ceasefire came into effect. If you have the video, Mike. Wow. 
יאללה למכוניות! מצמרים! And um, the next video, Mike, if you have it, is just of Palestinians returning to their homes. Um, they are encountering mass uh, bodies decomposing that have been left there uh, for some time, bodies outside the various hospitals that were under siege. So if you can just play the video just to show the devastation that people are returning to, if you have it, Mike. لا أظن أنه في شارع هنا في هذه البلدة يعني يخلوه أو خلا من أثار القصف شاهدوا في الصورة يعني يحتار الإنسان في أي منطقة يقوم بعملية التوثيق والتصوير مشهد دمار كبير Um, people have been reported to be fired upon if they're trying to go from South Gaza back to their homes in northern Gaza. So to some degree, the, the Zionist aggression is continuing despite the ceasefire. I just also wanted to draw attention to um, what a number of people are saying and what I've been saying since uh, the 7th of October, that there is potential that there will be a false flag bombing in the West, I think probably in the US on a massive scale. that would be blamed on some rogue Islamist creation of the intel agencies in order to deflect attention and equate Hamas with ISIS to switch back public opinion as happened in 9-11. And I would still reiterate that prediction. I'm not quite sure how it will play out. But I think those that want to escalate the violence may well uh, generate some kind of orchestrated um, event. Um, okay. And, uh, well, the, the death toll then? Um, the death toll stands at uh, 14,854, among them 6,000 children. That's an image of the multiple mass graves that are now being um, created during uh, the ceasefire. And if we move on, um, the, even in the West Bank, and remember in the West Bank, there is no ceasefire. Since October the 7th, 3,130 Palestinians have been arrested, and there has been mass devastation and destruction in the various uh, West Bank areas. Um, and also what I really wanted to draw attention to today is the deliberate targeting of journalists during this conflict. Um, a few days ago, Israel deliberately killed Al-Mayadeen's crew in South Lebanon. If you can just move to the next slide, which gives their names, uh, Farah Omar and cameraman Rabi. Memari were murdered earlier today in an Israeli airstrike on their location in southern Lebanon. An Israeli warplane fired two rockets on their location immediately after they finished recording. And then also in Gaza, of course, we've seen uh, the systematic
killing of journalists and their families. So uh, on this occasion, two days ago, they assassinated journalist Amal Zod and her entire family by bombing her family uh, home. Um, so it was reported on early on Friday that Palestinian journalist Amal Zod and her entire family were killed in an Israeli shelling that targeted their home in Gaza. With the martyrdom of Zod, the number of journalists killed in the Gaza Strip since the start of the ongoing aggression has reached more than 63. So basically, journalists are being deliberately targeted as part of the Zionist policy aimed at obliterating facts and assassinating the truth. Um, which is uh, quite interesting because here's uh, uh, Neil Holland, who's the uh, UK's ambassador to the OSCE, who was just saying yesterday, Mr. Chair, the wider picture for media freedom remains dismal. Uh, journalists and other media workers face torture, extrajudicial killings, and forced disappearances, arbitrary detention, intimidation, and harassment uh, in many parts of the OSCE region. Uh, now, did he mention Israel? Of course not, uh, because he went on to say, moreover, and too often, states have criminalized journalism itself. At least 14 journalists have been killed in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia continues to persecute dissenting voices in Ukrainian territory under its temporary control. Uh, as it has as it has been doing in Crimea since 2014. So uh, no mention in his speech about what's going on in Gaza at all. Uh, and uh, well, the, the uh, British embassy in Manila also very concerned about uh, the safety of journalists. The UK is committed to ensuring that journalists are able to do their jobs without fear of retribution or fear for their lives. Uh, fi find out more as the UK partners uh, and partners pledge support for journalists safety in the Philippines. Uh, but again, no mention of Israel. So it seems that uh, that journalist safety only applies in other parts of the world. Uh, and uh, well, we may have a view on that. Uh, thank you very much, Vanessa. Uh, let's uh, welcome Ben to the program. And Ben, uh, last week, Debbie uh, was talking about uh, the new contract between the NHS and Palantir. Um, I think you've got some more on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Debbie mentioned this earlier this week. It's been in the works for months now, actually. It's been rumbling on since the start of the year, but um, it's finally been confirmed that the US artificial intelligence giant Palantir and a consortium of partners have been given the contract for the NHS Federated Data Platform. I'm going to talk a bit about what that actually means, what the tool is designed to do, what the contract covers uh, the people behind Palantir and then also how this sits within larger national and international plans for the health system. Uh, so it was originally slated to cost 480 million. Contract has been signed at 330 million. I'm not sure exactly what happened there, uh, but it's going to run over the next seven years. Uh, and I'm sure that that budget hasn't gone away. It will be sat in a fund and accessible based on requirement as things progress. Uh, and essentially, this is a new operating system for the NHS. It, it really is that fundamental. Uh, this is going to underpin NHS operations across the whole of secondary care and further afield. Uh, and importantly, this uh, operating system hasn't been created by the health service and it hasn't even been created by a British business. This is coming from an international corporation. 
Um, the selection process has been controversial, to say the least. Palantir actually started working with the NHS at the beginning of the COVID situation in 2020. So the technology that underpins the federated data platform has been used for the past few years to coordinate the COVID response. Uh, and NHS administrators and politicians have been lobbying hard for Palantir to be selected for this position. And that's included uh, by introducing quite arbitrary requirements into the procurement process, uh, 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 particularly designed, as far as I'm concerned, to reject smaller and UK-based players from that selection process to make it more difficult for them to be to have uh, the, these services procured from them. And we've also seen personal intervention from um, some really high-powered system administrators. And uh, this guy, Vin Divaka, who is the acting transformation director at NHS England uh, and a big mask fan, apparently, according to his LinkedIn profile. He sent an open letter to medical directors of trusts who are running pilot schemes for the federated data platform and, and asking for them to publicly support the ongoing project. And really interestingly, that that gentleman, Mr. Debacker or Dr. Debacker, went to school with David Halpern from the Nudge Unit. Uh, which is a fascinating development that I uncovered last night. Um, so anyway, just a couple of statements here from uh, NHS England about what this uh, contract actually entails. So uh, they're really keen to straight out the gate, uh, um, um, put away people's concerns about data privacy. So uh, NHS England states that no company involved in the FDP can, ac can access health and care data without the explicit permission of the NHS, that's really important. Uh, it's also uh, uh, noted that it will not be used to access data for research purposes, I I importantly, uh, genomic research, which isn't gonna be used for that purpose, and GP data will not feed into the national version of the software platform. So primary care, which is a really significant part of care delivery, isn't included, and that might actually explain why we've seen a reduction in the budget. Um, so, uh, and within that, there are five use cases that the data platform is going to be used to deliver against. So that's population health and person insight. And that's right down to individual level insights about you and your health needs and how the system is going to coordinate care. So care coordination is a big part of that, how they're going to coordinate around you, how it's going to manage supply chain. Uh, how it's going to implement vaccination and immunisation, obviously a really important part of uh, what the health system's been up to, certainly over the past few years. And then also elective recovery. And there's a big focus on getting the NHS waiting list down and using automation as a way, a way to connect uh, need with capacity more efficiently across the system. So this is very much about optimising service delivery. Uh, in all honesty, it's a good way to do it. If I was running the system, I'd probably want something that looks like this. Um, but uh, unfortunately, our system and the people running it are doing some questionable things. I've already said that the FTP is going to focus on vaccination and immunisation. And last week, I spoke about um, the huge amount of vaccine damage that we've seen coming out of the COVID vaccination program, which this tool was used to run, uh, potentially over 100,000 excess deaths over the past couple of years coming out of the heart data that we talked about last week. And, and Palantir, this technology, this team, we're right at the heart of that, right? So big red flags. Uh, what's the NHS saying about it? So there, there are some people coming out and saying that this is a great thing to do. So Matthew Taylor, who's currently the CEO of the NHS Confederation, and formerly a chief advisor on political strategy to Tony Blair has said that the FDP is an important tool to help organisations across the NHS more rapidly connect and access data 
free up vital clinical time and deliver more efficient, faster and safe care for patients. Lots of great um, positive uh, buzzwords there from Mr. Taylor. Uh, but what does that actually look like? Uh, it's uh, useful to actually understand, you know, how this system has been built and how it's been deployed. Uh, Palantir talks about its track record working with HCA in the US, which is Hospital Corporation of America, where they've carried out a digital transformation similar to the one that they're embarking on with, with the NHS here. So HCA, it's not as big as the NHS, but it is still a huge health system, 180 hospitals, uh, 90,000 nurses, and it's about 20 25% of the size of the NHS itself with that with that number of nurses. We've got about 350,000. Uh, and, and ultimately, what we're looking at is, is frontline healthcare delivery. And, and, you know, that can be extremely chaotic, fast moving, unpredictable, complex, uh, with systems hacked together on different technology platforms, a lot of paper-based stuff still in there, a lot of processes that exist in the heads of system administrators and clinicians, people basically just wrangling the system into doing what they needed to do on, on, on a daily basis, right? So this is a very chaotic environment. And, and, and what Palantir and its foundry tool is there to do is to simplify and to track and to monitor that complexity and turn it into something that can be understood and controlled by system administrators from a central, a central technology tool. So the way they do that, they use something that's called an ontology. And basically that takes the data from the existing model. If you just hit forward on that again, please, Mike, to get the, the animation running. Um, the Essentially the data and the models from your existing operations are pulled together into the uh, what is it? in effect a, a digital twin of your organization with all of the different component parts and the data flows and the relationships that exist between them that you can then build analytical tools and uh, new workflows and further data and technology integrations on top of as a system administrator. So this is an incredibly powerful piece of kit. Um, in, what interesting thing to notice, uh, the, the assets being monitored and controlled inside the system actually include human beings. So you can see if we go back to the chart um, that there is, uh, uh, if you just click forward again, that's an individual. That asset is a person, Jay Simmons. Uh, they're geolocated. We can see their health. We can even see their pulse rate there, right? So this is the level of information that's being tracked on staff inside the foundry system that's the potential that it has and then all of that data rolls up into a set of administrator dashboards so if i'm a health system administrator i can essentially sit there and look at the workflows my supply chain and underneath that i see a whole load of logic and policies that drive that system at a micro level you know, there's a lot of complexity, a lot of interdependencies here in healthcare. And then all of that is then built into a code base, which locks the technology down into doing what you want it to do. This is, this is a really, really powerful tool. It's, essentially, it's a one-of-a-kind platform that Palantir have created. It is a phenomenal piece of technology. And as a system administrator, that is really your wet dream, right, to, to have access to this level of visibility and, that, that, and, and this level of insight into the system that you're administering. So it's already being used, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it underpinned the NHS COVID-19 data store 
right? So this is where they uh, coordinated all of the COVID activities. They brought together 147 different data reports on a daily and, and a constant basis. So all the death statistics that I talked about last week and I mentioned earlier, those would have come through the books here on this platform. They were bringing in ONS data and also data from private sector providers. Uh, it sits on a Microsoft Azure cloud platform under contract with NHS England. You can see highlighted at the bottom there. So that means that the whole of this infrastructure is running on Microsoft technology, on Microsoft computers. We're just renting it from them in perpetuity. This is not owned by the NHS. And Palantir are fully integrated into that ecosystem, and they've been building uh, uh, on the on the, the the COVID data store, they've been building dashboards for NHS England, but also for people from uh, places like McKinsey and Deloitte, for example. So there are external partners who have access to this platform. Right, it's a big old melange of public and private partnerships that sits at the core of this NHS transformation. And out of the organisations that I've talked about so far today, uh, Microsoft, McKinsey, Deloitte, Palantir. And Accenture, who's the other lead partner in the consortium who won this contract, they are all strategic partners of the World Economic Forum. Right? So they're essentially using this to usher in the World Economic Forum agenda. Uh, we know that AI is uh, slap bang in, in the middle of the, uh, the World Economic Forum strategy, as we can see on their strategic intelligence site, which you can go and look at and play around with. And this is absolutely baked into the UK life sciences vision, uh, which uh, Boris Johnson signed off in 2021 this is a WEF document it has build back better in the introduction there's absolutely no bones about it uh, and it essentially sketches out a data-driven marketplace that can only run on top of the data platform that this Palantir technology will provide right it's a precondition of the success of this vision this this world economic forum vision that the uk seizes the opportunity provided by health data and that's what this technology uh is, is going to enable um so you know this is right in the thick of it um the individuals behind it are fascinating i mean just just put aside the fact that this is a world economic forum uh, a, a strategy that's being delivered against here. Um, the, the individuals behind Palantir, I think, require a little bit of scrutiny. Um, Alex Karp is a warmonger. Uh, there was a recent interview that he gave where he basically says that the most important thing that can happen for the preservation of the West and its values is for the US military to be by far the best in the world, essentially excusing the fact that Palantir work heavily with uh, US intelligence agencies, military and indu industrial complex. Um, that interview that that quote came from was actually given to one of the other founders of Palantir, this guy, Joe Lonsdale. Uh, he's got a big, long CV, which can be summarized quite neatly if you just tap forward. Uh, uh, as the, he's essentially a tech bro. That's the vibe that I'm getting here. Uh, one of the um, investments that he's been made from his eight VC venture capital fund is in this thing. It's called OpenGov, which is about improving government procurement of private sector services. So this is this whole idea of government as a marketplace, integration of market and state equals fascism. Um, and then finally, we have Peter Thiel, who I've talked about previously, uh, he's got a long relationship with uh, military industrial complex. Palantir was actually set up with CIA funding, as we know. Uh, interesting other firms he's involved in include Clearview AI, uh, who specialise in facial recognition technology. 
Um, this comes from an article with uh, Unlimited Hangout, uh, which I talked about a, a couple of months ago, which is definitely worth reading. A bit more about Thiel and his philosophy, right? This is really important in order to understand what's going on here. His view is that in order to, uh, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, if you are starting a company, you always want to aim for a monopoly. You always want to avoid competition. That sits absolutely at the heart of Teal's philosophy and Palantir's philosophy. They want to be the single global platform for how the corporate international system is run. Um, and then as a final point, he actually got into some hot water earlier on in the year, quite entertainingly, for comparing uh, the, the British population's reverence for the NHS to Stockholm Syndrome. He said that the NHS actually makes people sick. Uh, and I agree with him. I agree with every single word of that. Uh, but I do not trust Teal or Carp or Lonsdale or Palantir to fix the issues that we've got. Uh, indeed. Absolutely. OK, thank you for that. Um, so if you uh, like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you uh, would be very welcome as a member. Your support is very much needed. Uh, you could pick something up as an alternative at the UK column shop. Uh, but please uh, do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, a reminder once again of uh, the uh, first annual David Ray Griffin lecture, which we are hosting on behalf of International Centre for 9-11 Justice. Uh, that begins at 6 p.m. on the 3rd of December 2023. And the theme of this is the Ruthless Empire post 9-11. So this is uh, everything that has happened since it was justified by 9-11. Uh, and then moving on, a, a reminder that uh, uh, Andrew Bridgen will be hosting several other people, including Robert Malone, Peter Cor uh, Pierre Corey, Ryan Cole, Steve Kirch uh, at uh, Parliament uh, to discuss democracy, truth and freedom. Uh, so he is asking for people to lobby their MPs to attend uh, this historic meeting to hear expert testimony on the pandemic and its consequences. Uh, and then uh, Andrew Bridgen has also tweeted this out. Uh, saying, I've been told unofficially that the date of the public petition debate, this is in the House Commons, on the World Health Organization amendments to the international health regulations, has been set for Tuesday the 12th of December. I'll confirm as soon as it's announced publicly. Uh, this is a huge issue of democratic accountability and sovereignty. So uh, that is something to pay attention to uh, coming up on the 12th of December, uh, pending confirmation, of course. Um, let's uh, come back to Israel. Um, and well, this appeared in Fox News uh, a few days ago. Um, at 17 Americans unaccounted for in Israel is the uh, lower third on the video clip. But the video clip is entitled Soldiers Arresting uh, Palestinian, Palestinian Militant Caught on Camera. Um, so I just want to show the uh, first clip here uh, from this report. Let's just have a look at this. We just heard a gunshot and uh, they're yelling at people to get out of the area. You can see the soldiers, get down, get down, lay down flat. Lay down, lay down totally flat. You can see things are very tense here. There were two gunshots and now they have someone on the ground. Go back right now. Very tense right now as these soldiers appear to be arresting a Palestinian man, they have him in handcuffs right now. And you can see they've blindfolded him. Now you may not have uh, noticed, uh, so we'll just uh, bring it on screen here. 
uh, just the final frame of that video and uh, that clip. And we can see on the left-hand side uh, somebody with a nice big camera taking images of this. So what is it? Is this normal that when Palestinians are arrested uh, by the IDF that uh, uh, people are running around with cameras taking photographs of it? Um, perhaps the next uh, clip uh, makes this a, lit a little bit more clear. Um, so let's just have a look at this uh, continuation. And they are taking him away. You can see here, they're leading him away. They've blindfolded this man. And it appears they have captured yet another militant who entered from the Gaza Strip. It gives you a sense of just how unpredictable all of this is. They don't know where people are hiding. And they could still be in the tree lines here near to the Gaza border. Now, again, you had to be looking closely, but if you were looking closely at the end of that particular clip, uh, you would have seen this image. So there is the guy that was allegedly arrested, now apparently not arrested, and putting his clothes back on. He has the uh, blindfold taken off, and uh, as you can see, it is lying on the ground in front of him. And in fact, the uh, IDF troops here ushering away the cameraman that has accidentally noticed this particular uh, situation. So, Vanessa, very briefly, uh, you know, this this whole thing is just full of propaganda. Well, I mean, you know, that's pretty much what we've seen since the 7th of October. Um, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, we've seen various uh, mainstream channels uh, faking various news items. So, uh, yeah, not surprised. And we also, of course, saw it for, for many years in Syria. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that the mainstream media is clearly complicit in this because mm -hmm. they were there, they saw it. Uh, what's going on in the BBC? People, I mean, we talked about some complaints <laughs> from within the BBC uh, last week, I think it was, but there's more, more complaints um, now. Well, yeah, I mean, going back to the 24th of October, this is up at my uh, website so people can go and read it uh, in detail. And I do recommend it. It's a very good letter from the Beirut correspondent, if you can just move on, Mike. So this was back on the 24th of October, BBC correspondent based in Beirut, Rami Rouhayan, to the Director General of the BBC, Tim Davey, voicing the gravest possible concerns about BBC coverage of unfolding events in Gaza. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm basically hopping to the end of his missive, but I do, as I said, recommend that people read the whole thing. In conclusion, it appears that the BBC is keeping a lot of highly significant and relevant information, including extensive evidence, expert opinion, and historical context from the public. Members of the public cannot possibly form an informed opinion or a basic understanding of the unfolding events without access to such information. It also appears the BBC could be reinforcing Israeli propaganda meant to dehumanize the Palestinians. There is a lot more to be said, but these are the broad headlines. And he finishes with, um, this is a question now of complicity with the genocide against the Palestinians, genocide which has been described as such by international lawyers and UN agencies. Um, so that was on the 24th of October, moving forward to now, um, an article in Al Jazeera in the last couple of days as Israel pounds Gaza BBC journalists accused the broadcaster of bias. So let's have a look at the actual article itself. 
the BBC has been accused by its journalists of failing to tell the story of the Israel-Palestine conflict accurately, investing greater effort in humanizing Israeli victims compared with Palestinians and omitting key historical context. So the same thing again. In a 2,300-word letter written to Al Jazeera by eight UK-based journalists employed by the corporation, they also claim the BBC is guilty of a double standard in how civilians are seen, given that it's unflinching in its reporting of alleged Russian war crimes in Ukraine. And they continue, um, the BBC has failed to accurately tell the story through omission and lack of critical engagement with Israel's claims and has therefore failed to help the public engage with and understand the human rights abuses unfolding in Gaza. Thousands of Palestinians have been killed since October the 7th. When will the number be high enough for our editorial stance to change? The BBC journalist said that across BBC uh, platforms, terms like massacre and atrocity have been reserved only for Hamas, framing the group as the only instigator and perpetrator of violence in the region. This is inaccurate, but aligns with BBC's overall coverage. For me, and definitely for other people of colour, we can see blatantly that certain civilian lives are considered more worthy than others, that there is some sort of hierarchy at play. That is deeply, deeply hurtful because actually none of us struggle to empathise with Palestinian civilians. So a very strongly worded letter written anonymously because of fear of recriminations, there were recriminations against journalists that were um, even sympathetic to the Palestinian cause in the early days. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, um, I just want to uh, um, bring the governor of New York on screen because, of course, the reason uh, one of the issues here is is uh, uh, disinformation and so on, and we see the evidence of mainstream media not necessarily being accurate in the reporting. Uh, quite a lot of the time. But in the meantime, we have this uh, huge effort to stop freedom of speech because any counter-narrative is viewed as disinformation or misinformation by uh, governments around the world. Um, now, Debbie on Wednesday was talking about uh, the use of the term inoculation with respect to misinformation and disinformation. We've all got to be inoculated against it. Uh, this is the governor of New York, uh, and she has something to say on this issue. So let's just have a listen. Today I'm directing the Director of Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services to develop media literacy tools for K-12 in our public schools. This will teach students and even teachers to help understand how to spot conspiracy theories and misinformation, disinformation and online hate. Start talking about what we're seeing out there. Give the teachers the tools they need to help these conversations in school. And by teaching younger New Yorkers about how to discern between digital fact and digital fiction, we can better inoculate them from hatred and the spread of it and help prepare them for a very fast-moving and often confusing world. Now, of course, that's extremely dangerous because uh, we were already seeing our children being indoctrinated in certain uh, policies and certain ways of thinking. Uh, this is really wanting to take this a step further. Um, 
it needs to be stopped. But uh, now Ben was talking about uh, Palantir and AI, of course. Uh, I wanted to uh, to bring this on screen. This is the, uh, a bill from, it's a private member's bill from the House of Lords. Uh, so Lord Holmes of Richmond, it's the Artificial Intelligence Rackets Regulation Bill. Uh, it's had its first reading. It's uh, scheduled for its second reading. Uh, but of course, why is this coming forward? Because the government has made it absolutely clear that what they want to do is effectively deregulate the use of artificial intelligence in the UK, basically take the brakes off what they describe as innovation. Now, of course, over the last uh, uh, several days, we've seen the whole furore over OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT. Um, this is Reuters saying that OpenAI researchers warned the board of AI breakthrough ahead of the CEO ouster. Uh, now, this was, uh, of course, the removal of uh, Sam Altman, the, chair, the CEO of, of uh, OpenAI, for four days uh, in the cold, really. Uh, he was being brought back as chief executive again. But this was supposedly, this whole furore was supposedly uh, over the issue of safety of, of AI. Now, the problem is that the debate is centered around the risks of artificial general intelligence, uh, which everyone's worried is going to take over the world. Um, if it's ever invented, maybe that is a threat. But in the meantime, there are many more serious dangers. Uh, and uh, so I just wanted to sort of feature a couple of those and, and really consider what are the dangers? Why would there be a need to regulate or, in fact, maybe even consider not proceeding with AI at all at this point in time? Uh, this is uh, insurance post from, from the 9th of November 2023. AI and automation must come to the civil courts says for, former Lord Chancellor. Now, we're already seeing how the effects of uh, companies already starting to use AI, which isn't really artificial intelligence at all. It's just basic computer algorithms that are maybe a bit more advanced than they used to be, but are being marketed as being uh, artificial intelligence. But nonetheless, in the process, we're removing the human factor from uh, our interactions between companies and individuals. And the removal of humanity from that tends to make the decisions that the algorithm algorithm makes quite draconian, quite uh, unpleasant and uh, unfightable in many ways. So to bring that into the courts seems to me to be a hugely dangerous development. Uh, this is Euro News uh, from a few days ago. Uh, or actually, sorry, this is from May this year. Rapid growth of news sites using AI tools like ChatGPT is driving the spread of mis misinformation. Well, of course, if you build a news site and you rely on ChatGPT for your news, uh, bearing in mind that most of what comes out of that seems to be nonsense, uh, then, of course, you're going to end up with, with something which isn't very accurate. But what's the point here? The point is that as more and more news sites appear on the internet, driven by AI algorithms, uh, things that are being branded as AI algorithms, that effectively uh, uh, pollutes the entire news infrastructure with nonsense. It becomes very, very difficult to, to find out what the truth is. Uh, and this, again, is something government wants to develop because they want to make sure that only their trusted sources are the reliable sources that everybody goes to because the rest of the internet is effectively uh, polluted with with uh, with nonsense. Uh, then we've got the whole issue of deep fakes, of course, being largely driven at this point by the porn industry, but not exclusively by the porn industry uh, because the, the uh, Hollywood uh, film industry is also very keen in, on this as well. Uh, which is why we've had these uh, actors and screenwriters strikes over the last uh, several months. This is also hugely dangerous. Uh, and then we've got even in nature uh, from a couple of days ago, a post 
chat GPT generates fake data set to support scientific hypothesis. Researchers say that the model behind the chatbot fabricated a convincing, bogus database, but a forensic examination shows it doesn't pass for authentic. Uh, and so, you know, not just the media, but also so-called scientific literature being polluted by uh, nonsense from these types of models as well. So this is hugely dangerous. And of course, again, who's driving it? Uh, government uh, with announced uh, on Wednesday as part of the autumn statement, 500 million pounds investment in AI supercomputing uh, by the British government. Uh, and that in combination with the complete deregulation of the thing uh, makes it uh, a pretty dangerous situation, in my opinion. So uh, from there, let's uh, move back to Ben then. And uh, Ben, C40 Cities. Yep, so C40 Cities been covered uh, a lot on the column of late, uh, and they're really gearing up, actually. There's a lot more activity coming out of this organization. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a summary for those who, who are unfamiliar with it, uh, it's a global a uh, coalition of 100 mayors from around the world that are united in action to confront the climate crisis, right? So cities are leading the way when it comes to tackling the climate emergency. Sadiq Khan here, delighted at his opportunity to be the chair of G40 Cities uh, and essentially positioning himself at the head of 700 million people. He's now become the leader of 700, pe 700 million people in this global community. Graciously, though, he's deigned to invite someone else up onto the platform with him. Uh, they just announced the introduction of a co-chair who is the mayor of Freetown a lady in Sierra Leone, a lady called Yvonne Akisoya. These two are global climate leaders, and this is really all about the climate agenda that underpins really everything that they talk about. Um, interestingly, the C40 was founded in 2005 by our very own Red Ken Livingston, former mayor of London, pictured here at the World Economic Forum in 2008, a few years after C40 was founded. So that gives you an idea of the ideological lineage that we're talking about. Um, and also, the again, just really counterintuitive tie-up that we're seeing between hard left-wing politicians and global corporations who are helping to implement and execute a lot of the agenda uh, that we're seeing here. So just this week, they've announced the um, introduction of something called the Climate Pledge, which you can see here from Twitter, which is 400 of the world's top companies taking action now to reach net zero carbon by 2040, founded by those lovely people at Amazon also sometimes pronounced as a mason. Anyway, um, the Climate Pledge, in partnership with C40 Cities, have launched something called Lane Shift, a global initiative to decarbonize freight trucks in India and Latin America. Uh, as these regions grow exponentially, uh, I quote, we have a moment in time that we can get out ahead of this. Right, a moment in time. That's very, very. Um, uh, 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 reminds me very much of the the, the, the rhetoric that we, we were hearing from Klaus Schwab actually uh, a couple of years ago around the Great Reset. We have to seize this moment. We have one moment in time to make this happen. Uh, obviously, all of this is very closely linked into the delivery of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Is lovely Sadiq Khan again, the figurehead of London, uh, which is held up as a, a poster child for how. Cities can help accelerate SDGs. Um, uh, C40, very interestingly, is actually backed by um, the, one of the people behind Extinction Rebellion, 
gentleman called Sir Christopher Hone, who's a strategic funder of the C40 Group. He also donated 40, uh, so he actually donated 46 million quid to this climate network. He was also behind XR and all the disruption that we're seeing. And all of this um, climate stuff is only going to escalate over the next few weeks. So we have COP28, the climate summit coming up. Uh, uh, this time next week, actually, it's, uh, next Friday it starts, I believe, and that's going to be attended by all of the same people we've just been talking about, as well as everyone's least favourite Caledonian race beta, Humza Yousaf. He'll be going to talk about Scotland's role in climate emergency. And actually, I'd highly recommend uh, going to have a quick read of uh, this article, um, just to sum up, which was posted today. Which is about woke racism and the great reset of the UK and the role of people like uh, uh, Humza Yousaf and Sadiq Khan in, in executing that agenda. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thank you. Now, Vanessa, uh, let's come back to you and uh, some comments that we want to highlight uh, from a State Department official. Yeah, quite extraordinary. I do think what we're seeing right now is this kind of empowerment of the racist, fascist, extremist elements of society. We saw it even with Swella Braverman before she was sacked in the UK. But here is a headline in the World Socialist uh, website. I just picked this randomly. Uh, many of the media outlets have reported on it. Veteran State Department official Stuart Seldowitz outed as a genocidal bigot after videos, videos of him harassing New York food cart workers go viral. I also want to point out that he has also been harassing Russian officials at the UN in New York, including Dmitry uh, Polyansky. But let's just play the video, which I think people will find quite horrifying. We killed 4,000 Palestinian kids. You know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Go, go. Wait. It's not my fault that you pray to a criminal. Listen, listen I'm, I'm working now. Do I buy something? No. Okay, go. I don't want to go. I'm born here. But you're a terrorist. You support terrorists. Listen, go. Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad did? Hmm? Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad? I speak English. You only speak English? No, speak English. No. You don't speak English? Yes. All right. Well, that's, that's, see, that just shows how ignorant you are. Because, you know, Muhammad was a rapist. You speak Arabic, the language of the Quran, the Holy Quran, that some, some people use as a toilet. <laughs> what do you think of that, people who use the, the Quran as a toilet? Does it bother you? Does it bother you? Tell me the truth. I don't speak English. You don't speak English? Ah, that's too bad. That's why you're selling food in a, in a food cart. Because you're, you're ignorant. But you should learn English. It'll help you. Of course, When they yeah. deport you back to Egypt. I would just like also to say that after the point where he says they'll deport you back to Egypt, he takes a photo of the guy and tells him that when he goes back, he will have informed both immigration in the US and the intelligence agencies in Egypt that will um, basically pull out his father's fingernails. Um, so uh, according to a now-deleted biography from his former employer, Gotham Government Relations, a well-connected New York-based lobbying firm, 
also packed full of Zionist sympathizers and Zionists themselves. Seldovitz was the firm's foreign affairs chair until this week when allegedly they distanced themselves from him. In its profile, Gotham touted Seldowitz's expert resume, which includes former director of National Security Council under President Obama and former diplomat for the U.S. State Department during five presidencies. 99 to 2003, he was deputy director of the U.S. State Department's Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs under former President and war criminal George W. Bush. That is, a racist bigot was in charge of mediating the two-state solution, underscoring how hollow and cynical these maneuvers by U.S. imperialism and its client state Israel were and continue to be. Um, from 2009 to 2011, he was acting director for the National Security Council South Asia Directorate under former President Barack, deporter-in-chief Obama. And just moving on to um, the next slide, um, he was a three-time recipient of the Department's Superior Honor Award. The award is given to employees who, among other reasons, have made contributions which had substantial impact on the accomplishment of the agency's missions, goals, or objectives, or whose accomplishments substantially contributed to the advancement of U.S. government interests. And I agree with this statement. In other words, Seldowitz's rant, rants are not just the ravings of a fascistic lunatic, but a blunt articulation of US government policy. I can't disagree with that. He was arrested after the videos went viral. Um, he's been released pending trial for hate crime stalking under supervised release terms. Yes, uh, Vanessa, thanks for that. Now, uh, let's just, you just wanted to very briefly mention the tunnels mm -hmm. uh, in Gaza. Yeah, because, you know, so much is being made of these tunnels. The fact that the Shifa tunnels, for example, were actually made by Israel when they occupied Gaza, but also the fact that tunnels have historically been used during times of occupation or times of uh, aggression, particularly, of course, by U.S. neocolonialists. Um, and if we look at the couple of excerpts that I took from this article that I do recommend people read Tunnels for Safety and Tunnels for Death. Let's have a look at what happened during uh, the US Operation Desert Storm when, of course, they in, in 1991 um, and attacked the Amria shelter in Baghdad. At that time, families in the neighborhood had huddled overnight in the basement shelter for a relatively safe night's sleep. The smart bombs penetrated the Achilles heel of the building, the spot where ventilation shafts had been installed. The first bomb exploded and expelled 17 bodies out of the building. The second bomb followed immediately after the first and its explosion sealed the exits. The temperature inside the shelter rose to 500 degrees Celsius and the pipes overhead burst, resulting in boiling water that cascaded down on the innocents while they slept. Hundreds of people were burned alive. And let's have a look at the tunnel system that nobody is focusing on. The underground nuclear development tunnel systems are uh, about 53 miles from Gaza, first built in 1958. It's a complex now called the Shimon Peres Nezhev Nuclear Research Center, where at least 80 thermonuclear weapons have been developed. The facility underwent a major renovation just two years ago. And to this day, writes Joshua Frank, 
Israel has never openly admitted possessing such weaponry and yet has consistently refused to allow inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency to visit the secretive site. So these tunnels somehow are fine, but Hamas tunnels, resistance tunnels are not okay. Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Right. Uh, I just want to end uh, with this. Uh, ben has a little bit of video to show in one second, but but I want to end with this. Uh, this is, of course, the Committee on Standards and Public Life, uh, and they have uh, decided to, or at least the government has decided to uh, choose someone to be their next chair. Uh, that someone is uh, this guy. Uh, this is uh, Lieutenant General Retired Doug Chalmers. Uh, he's been announced as the government's preferred candidate for the role of chair of the Independent Committee on standards in public life. Uh, but of course, uh, he was effectively in charge of Helmand province. So he uh, ended up as part of his military career in Afghanistan. So in 2007, he assumed command of the 2nd Battalion of Princess of Wales Royal Regiment uh, serving in Afghanistan. He eventually, a couple of years later, became uh, commander of Task Force Helmand. And uh, Task Force Helmand uh, oversaw effectively the uh, massive expansion of the opium uh, production in uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, I'm just asking the question today, uh, has he been chosen for the uh, chair of the uh, Committee on, on uh, Standards in, in Parliament uh, to make sure that there's a similar expansion of drug use uh, there? Uh, I leave people to, to think about that. But Ben, uh, you've got something to finish off with uh, here. Some good news, perhaps. Yeah, nice, nice little feel-good film. I mean, it's coming out of a tragic time, and um, but what uh, what I, I think people are seeing, I'm certainly seeing, is the tide. The tide is beginning to turn on on a lot of fronts, and uh, I just wanted to share this video of uh, Jesse Johnson, who's a Canadian gentleman who had his business shut down by authorities in Canada for defying COVID restrictions. And just this week, all of the charges against Johnson relating to non-compliance with COVID-19 public health orders have been dismissed by a Calgary court. And there's just a lovely little piece here of him outside the courtroom. I plan on uh, pursuing a civil suit, yes. Uh, it is a, a, a bittersweet irony what happened here today. Uh, my restaurant was shut unadjudicated. I was uh, deemed uh, guilty without going to a court of law. They shut a man's business down of 20 years, uh, two families that depended on that, 30 people that were employed by it, the millions of, of dollars in taxes that I collected every year because I did what? Because I chose to accept all and to extend my love to all the fine people of Calgary. A travesty uh, of justice is what, what, this, what, what occurred. Really, truly a shame, a grotesque perversion of hospitality. Uh, and I hope, I hope and pray that uh, my brothers and the sisters in the restaurant industry will stand up in the future uh, and refuse to discriminate any of their customers for any reason whatsoever. Uh, it was truly a, a, a shame what happened to the hospitality industry. Has it been a difficult two years for you? It's the most difficult experience of my life. Uh, these bastards, they literally tried to break me. They tried to break me financially, they tried to break me mentally, and they tried to break me spiritually, uh, and they almost came close. Uh, if it wasn't for the good people that joined me here today, the many who uh, I fought with on the streets of Calgary, in the prairies at Coots, uh, in Winnipeg, all across Canada, the millions who rose up to defend our rights and freedoms in this great, great land, uh, we need to uh, pray to Jesus Christ to offer us forgiveness uh, and uh, to give us the light to fight further into the future. What is your message to people who are still fighting against 
against these charges against the government. The government is still going after them. Never give up hope. Never give up hope. Uh, and uh, believe in yourself. Uh, one thing I've learned across this journey is that uh, the power of the human spirit is indomitable. Uh, and if there's a mountain in front of me, that mountain shall move. So, very good. Message. Yeah, leave yeah. it there. Okay, thank you, Ben. Thank you. Well, we've got to leave it there as well. Uh, I want to say thank you very much to Ben and to Vanessa for joining me today. Uh, thank you for joining me, uh, for joining us. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes if you are a UK Colin member for some extra, but otherwise we'll be back on Monday at 1 p.m. as usual. I hope everybody has a great weekend and uh, we will see you then. Bye-bye.